Welcome back to the Clergy Suite. I'm Rabbi Dara Frimmer, and I am sitting here today with Rabbi Zoe Klein-Miles. Hello, hola. Hola. Because... <laughs> And while we do speak many languages at Temple Isaiah, the reason you are saying hola is because uh, you are about to depart on a trip to Spain with yes. congregants at Isaiah. Yes, an Isaiah trip to Spain. We're really excited to learn about the history of Sephardic Jewry and to see it firsthand. That's fantastic. And to eat tapas. Of course. And dance flamenco. I think it all. I think it's all part and parcel of a good Isaiah trip, uh, and this is really interesting because I think many people associate us with traveling to Israel, which we try to do every two years. Um, it's it's been a while since we had an international trip that Isaiah ran, um, but funny enough, you are the international traveler for this. So it, yes, be- before Spain, you went to Morocco. Yes, right. So a different aspect of that was Mizrahi jewelry. Um, which is really interesting. So now I'll get to see the other side of the Andalusian Moorish influence on our people. Well done. Well done. And, <laughs> and also tracing the roots of Maimonides and... Uh, famous Torah scholar. Picasso, not a famous Torah scholar. <laughs> <laughs> but also equally as interesting to the Jews. Right. And uh, any um, any forecasts on where you might go after Spain? Such a good question. Uh, you know, there are people who really want to do some kind of river tour Mm -hmm. of uh, Eastern Europe. So we'll see. All right. Keep us posted. Um, My next trip is not going to be until January when we are taking adults from Isaiah to Israel for another one of our what we call Israel 2.0 trips, uh, which I'm very excited about. And uh, we just learned uh, in in recent days that Bibi Netanyahu was unable to form a government. Mm -hmm. And so who knows by the time this episode launches if Benny Gantz will be able to form a government. Uh, but the question always when traveling to Israel, which I love, is you never really know what politically is going to be happening when you arrive. That is true. I know the last 2.0 trip that you took, everyone came back and people said, well, what did you learn? And the most common response was, it's complicated. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And I and I still feel like it is. Uh, but, but now I think we can say that about America. I think that's we can true. kind of say that about Spain. <laughs> that's true. Right. That is true. I am pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's okay, because as we know, Jews do complexity well. We have always been, uh, I think, lovers of nuance, and uh, the easy pathway is likely not the correct pathway if you're Jewish. Um, Well, I want to talk today uh, about High Holy Days, Uh not because we are anticipating them, but because finally we are on the other side of them. So nice. It's so nice to actually sit with people and have more luxurious conversations and not feel like you're rushing off to prepare something. That's right. That's right. So I wanted just to give people a little window. Uh, A lot of people enjoyed uh, our conversation about how rabbis prepare sermons and anticipate sermons. But just in general, what's it like to be a rabbi after the High Holy Days? And as you look back, can you give me a couple of highlights for you? Again, in theory, we know as rabbis most of what should happen. But yet there could still be surprising moments. There could be moments that really caught your heart, that took your breath away. Um, what for you stands out in, in now that we're a few weeks behind? High Holy wow. Days meaning Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And then if you want to throw in a little Sukkot Simchat Torah. Right, right. Um, well, there's so many highlights for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, I, I love Rosh Hashanah because it's the launch of the season. And so it feels there's so much preparation that goes into everything. But that's really where it all starts. Yes. Um, this year, for the first time, I felt a new level of being able to participate, not just as a leader of services, but actually as a worshiper as mm-hmm. well. So I thought the the music just took, took off to new heights and mm-hmm. was transformative. Um, I love Ritze and... Uh, 
standing in front of the Ark for Avinu Malkenu, and um, it's so majestic. That's the a great high word. holy days. Yeah. And I think especially at Royce Hall, even though we have challenges with mobility and seats that squeak uh, and certainly the parking we could always do better on, uh, there is something majestic that um, Royce Hall, I think, offers in a way that also 1,200, 1,300 people adds to that sense of real power. Right. Hearing all hearing that chorus of voices together, it's mm-hmm. really it's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then you gave two extraordinary sermons uh, on Erev Rosh Hashanah Thank and you. also on Yom Kippur Day. Um, and again, all of those sermons, I should say, can be found on Your our website. Your sermon was a highlight for me as well. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, but the video, the audio, the actual text, um, not to mention that incredible um, video of your short story, The Most Important Person in the World, which you had animated and then is now available for people to share with their friends. Um, what were some of the interesting pieces of feedback you got um, you know, you, we spend all these hours designing and carefully looking at every word. Um, what did people hear? It's it, it's really interesting because, you know, when you write a sermon, you write a sermon for particular people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're thinking about conversations you've had all year. And so you're this is part of that conversation. So when people say, did you write that for me? The answer well, could actually be yes. It might be. It <laughs> might be yes. Or you're definitely part of it. Yeah. And so when I talked about small acts and talked about, um, you know, how our little actions make a difference, it, the two sermons I gave were really one sermon. Um, they were they the messages connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it was really based on countless conversations on walks and in my study and at people's homes about uh, people feeling helpless Mm -hmm. and really uh, upset about what's the the state of the world and feeling like they did, they were impotent to do something about it. Yeah. And what mattered in the end. Right. And so um, I think that the responses that I got were personal. Um, I think people felt that that's what they were looking for. Mm. And so it spoke to that. That's great. Um, so so I was I was very happy with that. But there was another way to go with the sermons, which was, um, you know, where you, you're not comforting people, but actually agitating, them. agitating them. Yeah, right. And so after one of the things that I know you do as well, it's really interesting to read all of our colleagues sermons. And to see the things that they spoke about. And, you know, some offered a lot of comfort and holding of their communities and mm-hmm. some really agitated their communities. Um, so then, you know, in the aftermath, you wonder, well, what would it have looked like if I hadn't responded to all of those cries for help and instead, you know, really poked the wound? Yeah. You know, yep. what, would, what would we be talking about now? That's we probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the same time, I think what I'm learning is that in a community like Isaiah, we have groups of people who speak to both sides of that debate. There are some people that want to be agitated, who expect when they wake up and, and park their car in parking lot structure four and walk up, they all they are thinking about is what provocative, you know, insightful and sharp thing is my rabbi going to tell me where I should leave feeling inspired but also uncomfortable. Like that that's a rush, right. an adrenaline rush. And almost always with our community, I feel like that is more about the politics and about mm. a call to action in terms of changing the the structure of our society than it is where I very rarely has anyone said to me, you know, I really wish you had poked me more around my observance level. Mm. That has not yet come forward. Right. That I, has- I wish, Rabbi, you'd made me feel bad about not doing enough for Shabbat. Right. I feel too good after the holiday. Right. But I think people want 
at least in this community, they want to feel they are charged to make this world more just and compassionate. And almost always that comes through a social justice, I'm putting finger quotes mm-hmm. in the air, social justice style sermon. And on the other hand, we have a significant number of people who equally say, um, I am not coming to synagogue to be um, read the headlines of the newspapers and of all of the media channels. Right. Uh, let me have a sanctuary in time and space and teach me how to be a better person. As if to say, and this is always hard, Judaism historically was not political, which we know isn't true if you think about right. any prophet all the pro- right. who's all the words screaming of at the society for not treating the poor and the widow and the stranger well. We've been political since the very beginning, with being an oppressed, marginalized people. You have to be political or you're dead. Right. So we understand politics. And quite helping well. the poor doesn't just mean, you know, putting out your recycled so that they can, you know, bring them to a center and get five cents for each bottle. It actually is about policy yes. and lobbying. And that's right. Uh, the Jubilee year, one of my favorite examples, the idea that you wipe out all debt every 50 years is, a, is an inherently political decision. By oh, the Torah. yeah. Especially right now with the elections ramping up exactly and so we so we have this struggle always and we just want to I mean I feel like both of us know it and we want to name it is um we have a diverse community and it's not that we've counted the numbers of x X number of people on this side want only spirituality x number of people only want politics it's we actually all want a little bit of both but when we come into the high holy days vulnerable really needing to hear a message that's going to speak to us because thank god we still look at high holy days with openness that this moment might change us we have not gotten so cynical or jaded as to think this is all just theater Um, right in those moments where we don't hear a message that resonates there is deep heartbreak and disappointment and in a moment where we feel like the rabbi left out the piece that was going to make the biggest difference in our lives there is maybe a sense of is this still the right place for me um, and how do we reconcile that on the most important day of the year? What were some of the things that people responded to most in your sermons? So I'll, I'll start with the thing that I was hoping for more feedback on. And again, it's always a curiosity of whether that right. means like it was an eh sermon or if it was That's just like when people laugh at parts of my sermon that I didn't realize were jokes. That's exactly <laughs> what I said to Michael when I got home. I said, I don't even know how to describe this, but there were at least two places where yeah. people laughed. And I was like, guys, it's a serious story. That was not funny. <laughs> What happened? So <laughs> we can talk about that later, too. Um, so my Yom Kippur Kol Nidre sermon was about the need for, as Reformed Jews, for us to really rethink our practice around choice and reintroduce obligation and to no longer default to the idea of Reformed Judaism means I do whatever I feel like doing, that if we want community, we have to learn to start doing things that other people need. I really loved this sermon, and I feel like it's a big piece of what uh, of what I imagine Isaiah will become, is a real place where people are able to respond to one another, but we have to figure out how to speak to the Reformed Jewish soul, which today is is pulled in a lot of different directions, and, and synagogue is only one of them. And so how do we right. reprioritize the time that we spend here and our willingness to serve one another? People basically said to that, great sermon. Right. There wasn't anything they picked out. There wasn't a moment where they said, like, that thing you said. About sacred obligation. Sure. And I, you know, so I thought I was on fire. So it's good. It's a good humbling moment. The other piece was on, um, on Rosh Hashanah. I talked about anti-Semitism. And I talked about immigration. So that got real specific. Lots of people said, I also, when I was in Europe, felt mm. scared. I also wanted to tell my child, hush up. Don't make yourself so obviously Jewish. 
people around immigration said, thank God you said something because this is unsustainable and we have to do something different. And I also heard, as I would expect, people who said, I wish you hadn't gone so political. I don't think you needed to talk about Trump, even though it was only one line. Right. Uh, and that's okay. That is okay too. But that sermon got a lot more attention. Um, and the thing, of course, that I was waiting for was um, no, only a few people said to me, oh, and it was only 18 minutes, Rabbi. Good work. <laughs> Which is there, awesome. are th- there are those who are watching the, the, the clock that as is- well. <laughs> um, but the last thing I'll add is that what really caught me off guard, but it's a great moment as well in preparation, is um, I spoke at Yisker about my father. Um, and that, the- was, that was a, honestly a real highlight for me, too. And so... When I was writing it down, um, I, you know, I, I, it was very heartfelt. I even choked up as I was typing mm-hmm. out my notes. So it was very close to my heart. But in Yisker, that late in the day on Yom Kippur, where you assume people are half asleep, half awake, half with it, half not, and it was part of an hour-long Yisker service, I, you know, I didn't think much of its impact. I thought, like, I'm going to offer this in the midst of many other beautiful readings and music. And that's actually what people are talking about. That's so interesting. More emails and more comments in the hallway about if they heard that piece, um, that really spoke to them. And so that, again, is just a step back from what, as a rabbi, I think is most important. And remember to say that we are always, as you said in our last conversation, in conversation, an ongoing conversation with our community. Um, And so I'm just I'm holding that feedback as well um, with a lot of love. That it's so interesting because that does happen where sometimes uh, you'll do a prayer. One of us will do a prayer introduction. So it might be one paragraph. It might be, a, you know, 90 seconds introducing a prayer. Mm-hmm. And then after the holiday, that's the thing everyone talks about. And they'll say, I loved your sermon when you said X. That's right. But they you co- know that X was actually not part of the sermon, but was this, you know, 90 second little that's right. uh, introduction. But in a funny way, that's sometimes where it's safest to play with the the bigger things, you mm-hmm. know, the th- big themes, mm-hmm. immigration, gun control, you know, uh, climate change, climate change, and you make it short and impactful, but not your whole message of the holiday. And it can stick. Yeah, I think that's great. I do want to um, I'm curious for your thoughts on one other topic, which is when we go back to Yisker, um, this is really, again, Yisker and Ni'ila are are. Even though we shouldn't say Yisker is a highlight because it's so raw and it's so painful to reconnect with our loved ones who have died, for many people, it is some of the most meaningful work we do around accountability and fully becoming present with who we are and how we've grown and changed. And then Ne'ila, of course, being our concluding service. So what we have is uh, a practice at Royce Hall where we welcome everyone to come to Yisker. We don't hold by the traditional rules that only if you are mourning a parent or right. only if you are an adult, that we allow people to come in with families if they wish to sit wherever they sit. We allow people who are entering for Ne'ila to come in early. And the result of that is more people learn about Yisker. More people may catch something that really does transform them. More right. children can ask their parents why you're crying and learn about a grandparent or a sibling. And on the other hand... Oh, and on the other hand, people who are deeply connected to that moment of mourning are hearing the doors open and close. Um, children obviously talk, as children do. Um, many families, even though we ask people not to bring food into Royce Hall are trying to keep their kids quiet and so will often be giving food to their children. Right. Um, and the opening and closing of the doors and the cell phones and the, and that creates a real disturbance for people who are mourning and remembering. And I just wonder about, 
aside from conversations like this, how do we create awareness around shared space, especially around these important times of year? I wonder, you know, I wonder how generationally it changes because the parents whose children are making the most noise are oftentimes the ones who were hushed the most when their parents took them to synagogue. And so I wonder if it if it swings back and forth that, you know, they they were uncomfortable and felt unwelcome. Mm -hmm. And so they want their children to be more welcome. And so everybody's just trying to find that sweet spot. Um, of being respectful and you know observing sacred space, but at the same time they want every, they want their kids to want to come. Mm -hmm. So it it is it's really a challenge. What would it look like if next year at Yisker we the doors were closed and the ushers had some sort of you know scripted words that they said um, when people came in, just reminding you we are still finishing up our service. It's a service of mourning. Um, you are welcome to come in. Just know that this is the atmosphere we're creating. Yep. What would that look like? Would that feel, would that trigger some people feeling they're not welcome? Would it be a good thing? That's right. That's right. And other people have said, um, well, use the balcony more. Uh, um, but I have to tell you that um, the balcony is not a sound booth. <laughs> right. That's true. I can be sitting, as, as I'm sure you have as well, I can be sitting on the Royce Hall stage and I can see a lot happening in the balcony and I can hear also as sure. well. And um, so we don't really have sort of a closed off room where people could watch the service and hear the piped through sound and, and still be working with kids or perhaps be doing some work on their phone if that's their practice right. while listening. All we have is this one shared space and this ongoing challenge similar to um, every Shabbat service, every um combined attempt to say um, we are welcoming hachnasat orchim we are welcoming of visitors and of guests and of members to try to come under this one huge tent if you will and how do we share that space together because some sometimes that one time where somebody looks at you funny because your child is making noise or says something a sidelong glance uh, you hear about that sometimes decades later, mm. you know, where somebody will say, uh, my my family, we belong to a synagogue, but my mother didn't feel welcome. And so I didn't have a bar mitzvah. We never went back. You're and absolutely right. You see it. Uh, it really carries weight in these families. Mm -hmm. And so I think as clergy, we we want to protect the the worshipers and, you know, protect their experience of depth and connection. Yeah. But we also know that that flame is so uh, vulnerable. Yeah. And we want to just like shield the spark from being blown out. I think that's so right. And I just I just really want to hold that image as we as we close up this episode, because um, we think that the moment that we're in is the only moment that this moment is is uh, and we are, the, of course, at the center of the moment. It is our right. moment. And what we can't imagine, but I wish we could, is where will that family be in five or 10 years? Right. Um, where will I be in five or 10 years? And how will this moment become one of many moments and have a perspective on it at that point um, for forgiveness and for gentleness and for being able to ask for what we need and to be able to receive somebody's request of us? All of it in that intensity of the moment is so hard to absorb, understand, and respond to appropriately because um, we're so limited in what we're able to see. So right. maybe the blessing of this moment post High Holy Days 
really just as a way to wrap up is is to say we can see so much better now that we're out of the high holy yes, days. Yes, we can reflect <laughs> and learn. And we understand so much more about ways that we can continue to hold and develop this community. Um, and at the same time, with this reflection space, let's remember that there is going to come another moment of deep intensity um, and um, myopic view. Um, but if we can just play with being in it and then moving ourselves out of it, maybe that too is part of the lessons of this month that we are about to enter called Cheshvan, which has no holidays. Ah. It's just empty. And so if Tishrei is full of nonstop celebrations and commemorations, we're about to enter this space of breathing and of reflecting. Uh, and so may it be a blessed space for you as well. And we look forward to hearing more of your reflections uh, on the High Holy Days uh, when we see you next. <laughs> <laughs>